Well, with your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 32, and we're going to begin at verse 15 this morning, we are right in the middle of this very dramatic section in the book of Exodus, where Israel, while Moses was up on Mount Sinai for 40 continuous days, uh, hearing from the Lord and communing with God, as a nation, Israel went off into gross sin and idolatry. Their idolatry was centered around a golden calf that they made. And not only were they worshiping a golden calf, which would be bad enough. It would be bad enough for them to look at this idol and to praise it and to fix their attention on it and to sacrifice to it, as the text says that they did. That would be bad enough for them to look at that golden calf and say that this is the God that brought them up out of Egypt. All of that's bad enough. But then on top of that, they, they added to this idolatry um, intoxication and immorality. And we talked about that last week, how basically around this golden calf, they had what we would call a, a drunken orgy. There they were in this, in this situation. Well, Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, where we pick it up here in verse 15. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. One on the one side and one on the other were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. So Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and somewhere on the way down, he meets up again with Joshua. They come back down before them, and as verse 15 says, it says that he carried the two tablets of the testimony, those two tablets written by the direction of the hand of God. Matter of fact, they were so full of writing that it says that on the front and the back they were both written, which was somewhat unusual, not totally unique, but somewhat unusual in the ancient world. And as Moses came down with those two tablets of stone, think of how it must felt to hold something in your hand that was written with the actual finger of God. I mean, God wrote on those two tablets. And I tell you, he did it for an important reason. Not to indicate that what he wrote on the tablets was more the word of God. No, it's just as much the word of God as if he revealed it to Moses as he writes on the tablets. But just to emphasize something very important, that these laws came from God and not man. How important that is. Matter of fact, you can say that that changes everything. If what we have before us, what we read in this book, if it is really God's word to man, doesn't that change everything? No, if it isn't, if this is just the crazy musings of Middle Eastern shepherds and Bedouins from a few thousand years ago, then it puts it in an entirely different perspective. But ladies and gentlemen, if this is actually God's word, represented in a dramatic way by him writing it with his actual finger, it changes everything. It isn't up to our opinion. It isn't up to our conscience. It isn't up to our feelings. It is the word of God that you can accept or reject, but you can't get away from it because it's God's word that's delivered to us. Now, I believe it with all my heart that this is God's word. I hope you believe it as well. Written, so to speak, by the finger of God, but literally so with these two tablets. Well, 
As you may very well know in the story, those tablets didn't last long, did they? We'll get on to that in just a few moments. But I'm just wondering if there's anybody here who thinks, how cool would it be to see those tablets that were written by the finger of God? Wow! I tell you, you can come close to that in your own life. And what do I mean by that? Listen to this. This is what God says in Jeremiah chapter 31. He speaks about those who take part in the new covenant. That's what he says. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. You know what God says to those who take part of the new covenant, who come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, faith in who he is and what he's done for us. God says, I'll take those people and I will write my law on their hearts. Don't you want that? By the way, isn't that even better than having it written on tablets of stone? Because when it's written in your heart, there's something in you that delights in God, that wants to do his will. And that's what God says he'll do in the life of those who come to him by the new covenant. So they came down from the mountain, verse 19. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they have made, burned it in the fire and ground it to powder. And he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you brought so great a sin upon them? Wow, Moses is back at the camp, isn't he? He came down from the mountain. He saw what was going on. The first thing it says that the text tells us in verse 19, it says that he saw the calf. I see that idol. How dare you make an idol of the living God and worship it as the God that brought you up out of Egypt? How dare you do that? And then he saw them dancing around it celebrating it, rejoicing. And here's an idol, a false god, that you give the credit for bringing you out of Egypt. You're totally neglecting and abusing the true God of heaven who brought you out. And you're celebrating it. You're dancing around it. No wonder that Moses' anger, verse 19 says, became hot. He was angry. And he cast down the two tablets. And what a dramatic gesture that was. I'll tell you what a dramatic gesture it was because... Israel was breaking the covenant right there and right then. And it's almost, I don't know if Moses intended to do this or if it's just that his anger got the best of him. By the way, there's a few times Moses' anger seemed to get the best of him. He slew an Egyptian in his anger. He threw down the tablets in his anger. Later on in the book of Numbers, you're going to see that when Moses struck a rock that God told him to speak to and he struck it in anger. Each one of these things got Moses into some kind of trouble or difficulty. But here Moses throws us down. I think he's almost acting this out. You people, you Israel, you're breaking the covenant. So I'm going to break these laws. You're not even going to see these tablets written by the finger of God. You've broken the covenant. There you are in your drunken orgy around this golden calf. My anger is hot against you. So he saw the calf. He saw the dancing. He broke the tablets. Then did you see what he did in verse 20? I think this is awesome. So he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder. You know what impresses me about this? I think it's fair to surmise that Israel had become quite taken with this golden calf. I don't know how long they had made it the focus of their attention. The text doesn't exactly tell us. Moses was gone for 40 days. 
Maybe halfway in, they started with this attraction, the golden calf. Maybe it was, you know, uh, 20 of the 40 days. Maybe it was a couple of weeks. But for some period of time, Israel had put their focus, their devotion, their attention upon this calf. They had become quite taken with it. They made it the center of their worship. They sacrificed to it. They used it as the, the occasion to have drunken orgies. They'd become quite taken with it. Yet, when Moses comes down to the mountain, walks up to that calf, burns it in the fire, Grinds it to power. Nobody speaks a word against him. Nobody says, hey, don't do that. That's our golden calf. What are you doing? How dare you end our party this way? That's not right. Nobody said a thing. And do you know why? Because Moses was a man filled with so much divine power and authority from on high. Why? Because he had just spent 40 days in the very presence of God. And he came down with such a face with such a demeanor that nobody dared oppose him. They knew it. They could see it in the man. I, I can imagine somebody said, hey, Moses, stop. And then they could look at his face. No, don't tell that man to stop. That, that man has the power of God behind him. That man has something that I don't, that isn't seen in our camp of Israel. Nobody should dare oppose him. So he took it and he ground it to powder. And then what did he do with it? Verse 20 says, that he sprinkled it in the water. And then verse 20, he made Israel to drink it. Drink it. He wanted them to taste some of the bitterness of their own sin. You know how it is with sin. Sin usually tastes sweet at the beginning. And oftentimes it only tastes bitter later on. I think Moses wanted to say it's going to taste bitter to you sooner or later. Let's make it sooner rather than later. And so I don't know what their source of water was, a pool, a spring. He took that ground up golden calf. He sprinkled it in there. And I think he did it for several reasons. One of them was to show his complete domination over this idol. As if he were saying, what, this is your God? See what I can do to your God. How great is your God if I can come and just destroy it like this? What's your God going to do against me? Gore me with its golden horns? I don't think so. It's done. It's nothing. It's a foolish idol. And so he just did away with it that easily. Secondly, he wanted to completely obliterate this idol. It's gone. Nobody's even going to have a memory of it. Thirdly, he wanted to make the people pay an immediate consequence of their sin. Why does the drinking water taste so funny? Because it's golden calf drinking water. You better taste it and that's all you'll have to drink. But then fourthly, it's interesting. I never thought of this one. Just a week or so ago, uh, John Ludwig on our staff, we were talking about this, and he suggested something I never thought of before, but I thought it was actually quite insightful. He suggested that it was to make the gold of the idol absolutely unusable. I mean, nobody would want to get to that after it's been corrupted with bodily waste. Nobody's going to want to have anything to do with that. Nobody could ever profit from the gold that was used to make that idol again. It's gone. And you think, okay, fine, we're done with it. No, we're not done with it. All this golden calf incident had a ringleader, did it not? Do you remember the ringleader of this? Moses' brother Aaron. Well, what about Aaron? Verse 22. So Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn, become hot. You know the people that they're set on evil, for they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And I said to them, 
Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire. And this calf came out. We read it and laugh because it's funny. I don't think Moses was laughing. I I wonder if Moses wouldn't say something like this. You think I was mad before? Now with this excuse, now I'm really mad. Now I'm really angry. But did you see what Aaron first tried to do in verse 22? He just tried to deflect the anger. Verse 22, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. Hey, Moses, calm down. It's no big deal. Chill out. Come on. What's the big deal? And then verse 22, then he starts to blame the people. You know, the people, they're set on evil, which was true. But did it excuse Aaron in the slightest? No, Aaron, you led them into evil. Therefore, in verse 23, when the people said, make us gods that shall go before us, you should have resisted them. You should have told them, no, we won't go there. But instead, what does he do? He offers the lamest of excuses, saying in verse 24, I cast it into the fire and this calf came out. Isn't that amazing? It was a miracle. We just melted a bunch of gold and a little kettle there. And what? Up out of it hopped this golden calf. Now, friends, friends, Moses could see what that golden calf was before he destroyed it. And he could see the engraving marks on it. He could see the evidence of human workmanship on it. He knew that it wasn't the miracle calf that leapt out of the kettle. No, no, no. But yet, nevertheless, as lame as that excuse was, Aaron tried to run it by Moses and by the Lord. You you know what this excuse was, don't you? Anybody who's ever had a teenager knows what this excuse is. It's the classic, it just happened, excuse. Well, you got yourself into this mess and this mess. How did that happen? I don't know. It just happened. No, Aaron, it didn't just happen. The, the, The calf didn't just leap out. You made it. You fashioned it. You planned it. You shaped it. You molded it. You engraved it. You presented it. You proclaimed it. You put all this effort into it. And we look at it here and we just laugh. We go, oh, how lame is this excuse? Until you just start thinking about the excuses that you offer God in your life. Wow. Sorry to hit a little close to home, but it's true for all of us, isn't it? Never is the human mind more brilliant, more eloquent than when it comes to making excuses for our sinful behavior before God. I mean, have you ever had it? Again, I don't mean to beat up on our teenagers, but the parents of teenagers know this. Have you ever stood back just in awe at the cleverness of an excuse your child can offer to you? Just go, well, I know it's totally lit, but that was clever. That was really impressive. I don't know why it is that our minds are just so bent towards this rationalization and excuse making and self-justification, but it's wrong. And as easily as we see through Aaron's excuse, so God sees through all of our excuses. You know, I'd suggest to you that just this point up to the point in the text of Exodus, there's two mighty prayers that you can pray. And I'll be honest with you, they're dangerous prayers. It's as if if I were a doctor offering you a prescription and the prescription that I'm going to give you now, this is going to have side effects in your life. This is a dangerous medication to take, so to speak. It's like those commercials when you watch it and they're describing some medication and they spend 10 seconds describing all these horrible things that could happen to you. Think, who would ever take such a... But that's another story altogether. No, you get the idea. 
There's effects from taking this. And here's the prescription I would give to you. Two things you could pray. Number one, you can pray this. Lord, would you please destroy the idols in my life? You know that's a dangerous prayer to pray, isn't it? It's a good prayer, undeniably a good prayer. But it's dangerous. Because the thing about our idols is that we love them. We cherish them. We support them. And if you give God permission, he'll say, okay, I'll take care of the idols in your life. But here's another prayer you can pray. Not only, Lord, destroy my idols. Lord, would you please expose my excuses? That's a necessary, though dangerous prayer, is it not? But it's good. You know that's good for your life before God. Now, Aaron's sin and his following excuse were so great that Only the intercession of Moses saved his life. Look at this from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 20. It says this. And the Lord was very angry with Aaron and would have destroyed him. So I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Do you know what that means? That if Moses would not have prayed for Aaron, Aaron would have been destroyed. That's how easily God saw through his excuses. So. He dealt with the golden calf. He dealt with Aaron. Now, what about the nation? Verse 25. Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among the enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. You know, it's it's amazing how I can look at a Bible text and I didn't see something in it all week, but I just stand before you now and I see something in it that I didn't see before. Well, so let me explain. Verse 25, I see something really remarkable in this. It says that the people were unrestrained. Aaron did not restrain them. They were unrestrained, just doing whatever they want to do. The implication is, is that that the drunken orgy that they practiced around the golden calf just kept on going, at least in some circles in the camp of Israel. It just continued on. Now, you know what's amazing about this? The golden calf is gone. They didn't need a golden calf. The golden calf was just a projection of their heart, their mind. The real sin wasn't in the golden calf. The sin was in their own decrepit hearts that needed to be changed. Because they could actually sin just as easily without a golden calf as with one. The calf just gave them a greater excuse. And now Moses has destroyed the golden calf. He looks all around. They're still carrying art. At least some of them are. The same drunken orgy that they practiced before. And Moses says, no, the people are unrestrained. We've got to put an end to this. So what does he do? Verse 26, he calls out, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. How dramatic this is. Moses called the people to make a decision. How radical is that? Okay, everybody, everybody that's on the Lord's side, you come to me. You want to do your own thing, carry on the spirit of idol worship and the golden calf thing, even though I've destroyed it. If that's where your heart's inclined, fine, you stay where you are. But those who want to follow the Lord, if you're on the Lord's side, you come to me. That is a very dramatic call to decision. And I'll be honest with you as a preacher, I know this. Calls to decision often make people uncomfortable. They don't like it. And and I understand it sometimes because sometimes a preachers give a call to decision and they're manipulative with it. They're, you know, they, they do tricks or weird things upon people. And you know what? That shouldn't be done. But I'll say this. There is absolutely nothing wrong and everything right 
with the right kind of way of calling people to decision in Jesus Christ. I'll tip my hand to you. At the end of my message, I'm going to call people to decide to Jesus, for Jesus Christ this morning. You just prepare yourself for it. But there's everything right with doing that, with saying, whoever's on the Lord's side, come. If you want to choose for Jesus Christ, here he is today. Decide here and now, not just whenever you feel like doing it, but now's the time to do it and to offer people to make just that kind of decision. But I want you to think about all those Israelites who were called to make a decision right there at that word of Moses. He gave them every reason to do it. It's as if Moses said this to them. Listen, he's your creator. He's your redeemer. He's your preserver. He's your best friend. Why wouldn't you choose for him? And honestly, I just want you to think about that. Why wouldn't you choose for Jesus Christ? Sometimes I think that the best thing you could do is almost have what, you know, sometimes we talk about having an altar call, asking people to come forward. Sometimes I think the most effective thing a preacher could do is have a reverse altar call. Okay, if you don't want to give your life to Jesus, come forward and explain why. It doesn't take any sense to say why you want to give your life to Jesus Christ. He loves you. He cares for you. There's eternal life for him. There's joy and satisfaction in this life. He can free you from the guilt and the bondage of your sin. I could go on and on. That just makes sense. But you people persist in your rejection of Jesus. Now that needs some explaining. You come forward and explain that to us. But Moses said, no, here's the call one side or another. But it requires a lot. It does. It requires To be on the Lord's side requires decision. It's not going to just happen. You've got to decide. Secondly, it requires action. The people had to move. Moses said it to him this way. Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. It's the people who wanted to decide for the Lord that had to do something. If you didn't want to do anything for the Lord, fine. Just stay where you're at. Don't do anything. But if you're going to come over to the Lord's side, you've got to do something. So it required decision, it required action, but then it also required separation. You had to say, okay, I'm going to leave where I'm at, and I'm going to come over to where God wants me to be. And if a person is not willing to decide, if they're not willing to act, if they're not willing to separate in some sense, then I don't think they have true faith in Jesus Christ. But true faith will be reflected in that I'm willing to decide, I'm willing to act, I'm willing to separate as necessary. Well, look at how it played out here. Verse 27. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let every man put on, put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about 3000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day for every man has opposed his son and his brother. This is heavy, friends. If I might put it to you this way, it's heavy in two ways. It's heavy, number one, for how many were killed. 3,000. 3,000 people is a lot of people. 3,000 people in one day apparently clung to their sin so tightly that even when Moses had destroyed their idol and called them to repentance, they just said, forget you, Moses. We're going to go on our own way. We're going to continue this, this drunken orgy in the face of the whole nation, even though you've commanded us to stop, even though it's corrupting us and our neighbors. No, we'll carry it on. We'll lead others in it, and we don't care who knows about it. So that's one thing that interests me, the fact that it was so many. But I'll tell you what else interests me, the fact that it was so few. What do I mean by that? 
pretty much the whole nation was caught up in this. The whole nation was anywhere, let's just estimate, I know that there's widely, let's just say anywhere from a million to three million people. 3,000 from among a million to three million people is not a large percentage. I don't want to act as if it's insignificant. 3,000 of anything is significant. But as a percentage of the people, number one, you see how many genuinely did repent. And you see how many genuinely said, no, I am going to continue on in my sin. It was 3,000 of them. Now, you also notice because it was so relatively few that when Moses said, let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor, he didn't mean slaughter everybody. What he meant was nobody should be spared just because they're your brother, just because they're companion, just because they're your neighbor. Do you get that? In other words, if someone continued on in this flagrant sin, defying God and leading others, and if they were one of the ringleaders, it wouldn't matter, even if they were your neighbor. Sorry, I can't spare you because you're my neighbor. The holiness and the justice of God demands that this happen. But it was a terrible price to pay. Friends, there is a terrible price to pay for idolatry. Going on now, verse 30. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Now, wait a minute. Didn't we see last week that Moses already prayed and interceded for the people and God relented from the destruction? Why does Moses seem to do it again here? I'll tell you why. This is my idea. Why? Moses felt he had to do it again because he came down and he saw the enormity of their sin with his own eyes. It's one thing to hear, oh, they're being very sinful. Oh, Lord, I pray for them. Then Moses came down. He saw it with his own eyes and goes, Lord, I got to pray again. Lord, this is serious. Lord, what are we going to do? And so he says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps something can happen. Verse 31. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray blot me out of the book which you have written. You see what he's saying? God, forgive their sin. But if you won't, count me as guilty. Send me to hell. Friends, that's love. When he said in verse 32, if not, I pray, blot me out of the book which you have written. I love you. I am so blessed by this congregation. But I don't I don't think I could pray this prayer that Moses prayed. I, I don't think that I could pray. For you, and Lord, I'd be willing to go to hell so that they could go to heaven. I don't think I could pray such a prayer. But Moses did. You know who else did? Paul did, didn't he? Didn't Paul in the book of Romans say, Israel, my kinsmen, whom I would be accursed if they, if they could come to Jesus. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what Paul said. Beyond Moses, beyond Paul, you know who really said this? You know, Jesus. Isn't that what the cross is all about? Didn't the cross, Jesus say, 
Father, I want to stand in the place of my accursed brethren. And I want you to put all the judgment that they deserve, put it upon me. I will stand with them. I will bear their sin. All those who trust in me. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the great message. Is that I can talk to you about one who's greater than Moses. It's almost as if this, that Moses felt that Israel had sinned so terribly that the blood of a goat or the blood of an ox couldn't cover it. There had to be a man who suffered in their place. So therefore, Moses offered to be blotted out of God's book if he could somehow stand with the people, if he could somehow rescue them by his identification with them. But what did God say? God said no to Moses. You're going to see Moses in heaven. God didn't say, okay, Moses, sounds like a good deal to me. You're blotted out. I'll take the people. God didn't say that. No. Instead, God looked ahead to the sacrifice of one greater than Moses who would give himself for the people, bringing full and complete atonement. That's, that's what Jesus Christ wins for us. Verse 33. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, therefore, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued them people out of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. By the way, isn't that a great description for the golden calf? The calf which Aaron made. Didn't just leap out of the fire, did it? Friends, first of all, God said to Moses, okay, I won't send all these people to hell. I won't destroy them right here, right now. Now, verse 33, he said, whoever sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. You know, I'm going to reserve the right to judge individuals as is right. But God said, no, there's a future for Israel. Verse 34. Now, therefore, go lead the people to the place which I've spoken to you. Lead them. There's a place for them to go. And my angels shall go with you. We'll talk more about that next week. But he says, no, go lead the people. Guide them in the way. But then in verse 34, he also said this. I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. There would be a consequence from their sin. Now, what would their consequence be? Ladies and gentlemen, I believe the consequence for these particular Israelites would be that not one of these adult, well, I take that back, all but two of these adult Israelites would not make it to the promised land. That would end up being their punishment. And we'll talk more upon that theme later. But there was still a consequence for them to, but they didn't lose eternal life necessarily from this. They weren't wiped out right then. But it says, verse 35, so the Lord plagued the people. That's probably a reference to the previous plague, the previous judgment that wiped out the 3,000. So what do we end with here? Well, friends, I think we got a pretty clear call to decision, don't we? I'm going to pray in just a moment. And as I pray in the midst of my prayer, I'm going to give people an invitation if they want to put their trust in Jesus Christ and what he did to take their sin upon themselves. Now, I don't doubt that there's some here this morning, and you've never done that. I don't doubt that perhaps there's others. You've done it, but it was so long ago, and you have fallen so far away from your original decision that you feel like you must do it again. That's fine as well. 
I'll give you that opportunity. But for all of us here, shouldn't we say, God, won't you help me to pray a prayer this week? And how about if I just remind you of that prayer that I mentioned earlier? Lord, take away my idols. Lord, expose my excuses. Are you willing to pray such a prayer? Father, that's, um, that's my prayer for us together as a congregation. And that's what I want to pray for first, Lord, just to pray that you would give courage to each individual heart. Lord, I don't think that's a prayer that I can pray for anybody else, but I can ask you to act in their hearts so that they would pray it for themselves and say, Lord, take away my idols. Lord, expose my excuses. Because, Lord, at the end of it, our idols are nothing, and you see right through our excuses anyway. Won't you show us a better way? Lord, now, most pointedly, I want to pray for those who need to decide for Jesus Christ. Lord, I appreciate that it might make some people feel uncomfortable. Nevertheless, Lord, you do it in your word. And I think it's totally appropriate for us just to pray and ask, who is on the Lord's side? So, Lord, why don't you move in hearts right now for people who need to say this morning, yes, yes, I'll decide, yes, I'll act, yes, I'll separate as necessary. I want to be on the side of Jesus Christ. Friends, if that's you and in the integrity of your heart, you'd like to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, you want to decide for him right now, I'm going to simply ask you to stand. I'm not asking you to do it to embarrass you. I want you to do it because I want to give you some action to do. We talked about that. It's to decide, it's to act, it's to separate. If that's you this morning, I just want you to stand right here, right now. We'll pray for you. We'll uh, we'll minister to you. But who here this morning wants to decide for Jesus Christ? Bless you, man. Others here this morning. I know there are. I know some of you are just waiting for this part to be over so that you can feel you've escaped the time of decision. But I'll give it a few moments more. God bless you. Others here this morning. Bless you. Jesus stands with you. He really does. Bless you. Anyone else? For those of you who stood, I just want to lead you in a prayer. It's important that you understand that it's not just standing to your feet that brings salvation to you, but it's your repentance and trust in Jesus. And I just want you to pray this prayer to express it. It's not complicated. It's very simple. You just pray this. Jesus, I decide for you. Jesus, I bring my life to you and surrender. I repent of my sins. I believe upon you. And I ask that you would give me new life. Please do this, Lord Jesus. I need what Jesus has promised and what he did for me at the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.